0: And welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. We're on Playmaker Mentality. We're on iTunes every week talking about sports, society, and stuff. And it's April, and that means that it is NFL Draft season. And before we get to our very, very special guest, this week's joke sponsor is 5-Hour Energy because I drank it on Saturday and I was able to sit until 4 in the morning, which was very, very helpful. So, 5-Hour Energy, I highly recommend it if you ever have to stay out at 4 in the morning because your friends don't want to go to sleep. Now, the real meat of our conversation can begin, and I am absolutely delighted to introduce this week's guest, and this week's guest also comes bearing quite the tome. The 2016 Rookie Scouting Portfolio is on mattwaldmanrsp.com. It is $20, dollars nineteen ninety nine, as a matter of fact, and you should buy it and you should read it because there are over 2,000 pages, right, Matt? Well, about 1,500. 1, about 1,500 pages of wonderful football goodness. Uh, I promise I'm not overselling this. It is something that if you want to know who your team might pick or even know who to look at in fantasy dynasty drafts this year, general fantasy drafts. You have to buy this. And we're going to be talking about it. So, Matt Waldman, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure, Ethan. Thanks for having me on.
0: Definitely. And we're going to start with the sports segment, which will make up a majority of the show tonight. And before getting too deep in the book, I think it might make sense to begin with talking about your story, and how you really got started with this entire shindig. So, what made you love football? What made you fall in love in the first place?
1: I think I've always loved football since I was a kid. I mean, I I, I never played it on really an organized level for any length of time that was significant, but... um, Played football probably every day throughout my childhood, just as a, you know, it was a backyard neighborhood sport. It was something that I always fell in love with at a very early age, watching the game, reading about the game and playing the game mostly. And it was mostly from playing it that really made me fall in love with it. Um, I grew up in um, Cleveland, Ohio for the first 10 years of my life and and, you know, northeastern Ohio, western Pennsylvania. That area of the country is very much steeped in a, a tradition of, of football being a, a very big part of people's lives. And, and I think that that was something that was instilled in me from an early age.
0: And we have had multiple representatives of that part of the country on the show before. Sigmund Bloom, Indra Hanks, both of whom talked about how their geography really helped them fall in love with the sport as well. So now getting a little bit more into the RSP, I know that you have honed your process of how you evaluate players over a long period of time. I'm not going to say exactly how long because a gentleman never reveals somebody's age, but a long period of time. Could you give us from a layman's perspective what your process is like?
1: Yeah, Um I spaced my process in a former career where I spent a lot of time managing people and also then later managing processes and I learned a process on really how to monitor human performance and it was a best practice it was based on best practices that a lot of companies use in manufacturing and customer service sectors and I decided one day after you know, doing some I'd always done writing as a freelancer, um, doing work for a variety of companies, for a variety of publications in print, um, before even the internet became a, a haven for doing doing written work. And I just decided, you know, I started writing about fantasy football probably in around two thousand four, I think. I think two thousand three, two thousand four, somewhere around that range of time. And I just decided that this would be an interesting project to do and I um after thinking about how much I enjoyed the NFL draft and looking at rookies and, and trying to evaluate talent on a certain level. So I, I thought that really using this process and translating it towards evaluating NFL players would be cool because this process is based on really a good process of something where you it continues to improve on itself over the in the span of time, if you're really doing it right and strictly adhering to it. So part of what I do is I study um, I study players on a play-by-play basis. I- I'll watch their tape, and I literally write down what I saw in that play, um, what formation they're in, down and distance, time on the clock, um, what the defense looks like, what the defense is doing pre-snap, what the offense does pre-snap, what the defense does post-snap, what the line's doing, and, and then also what the player is doing. I'm mean, going to note all of that. So it's a lot of, a lot of transcription work of watching what I'm, what's going on. And I, I grade these players on a checklist that has questions that are formed based on what type of skills they have, athletic skills, skills for the position, the technique, of the game as well as um, conceptual understanding of the game as it relates to their position as well as well as just the game as a whole and each
0: checklist that I have is based on the positions that I study which is quarterback running
1: back wide receiver and tight end and so the, the checklist I use is based on you know defined criteria that I've that I've come up with and continue to refine over the years, um, to make sure that it's up to date with current techniques that are used in the game. And as I continue to gain more knowledge about the, about the sport, I've been doing this for 11 years. Um, and you know, I don't see myself doing anything. Um, I don't see myself not doing this for any time, you you know, in the future, I'm going to be doing this for a long time. Um, so, you know, it's, it's information is built on itself. And i study studied players based on two types of talent. One is depth of talent and the other is breadth of talent. And breadth of talent is really the, the minimal requirements of what can get a player in the NFL. Um, and that's based on, you know, if you were hiring somebody for a job in corporate America or, or whatever um, field that you're in, you know, say it's a teacher, you're looking at a baseline of skills for that teacher. You know how you know basically their knowledge of their subject how they how they can lead a classroom how they present material how they handle students uh their communicate basic communication skills um their ability to do multiple tasks at once things like that those are basic skills then i also study how well they do each of those skills um because there's a difference you can have a teacher who you know, obviously, does a lot of things up to up to snuff, but may not be extremely talented in any of those areas. Um, but they're good enough to do the job. Um, on the other hand, you may have a teacher who may not have the greatest organizational skills, may not have um, the. The, the full breadth of knowledge that you're looking for in a specific subject area. Maybe they're only able to teach a couple of classes, a, t- a couple of different types of classes, um, but how they teach and how they work with students is so good that, it, you know, those other things don't matter quite as much. And, you know, a way that would translate on the football field is think Mike Wallace with the, when he was with Pittsburgh. He couldn't run a full complement of the route tree, He certainly wasn't a tackle breaker. He certainly had areas of his game that were missing in terms of the broad concepts of talent, but the depth of being able to get deep and win in the vertical game was as good as any player, you know, in football at that point. And that's why he's able to make a living at this stage. You know, how he's able to make a living in the NFL is because of depth of talent. So I study those two things. I, I show you all my work and it's and it's a type of um, publication where really you're only going to see – most of you are only going to read about 300 pages worth of it. It's all bookmarked on a PDF. Um, it's like a draft guide that you get to see rankings. You get to see parts of my process that are more entertaining, that are more insightful based on – really putting all that work together and doing a a thorough analysis that is presented to its reader, presented to the reader. And then I just show all my work because I think that's that gives you a chance to see the transparency of how I define my process, what the process looks like, what the play-by-play notes look like, what the checklists look like. And that's just a way for you to see that you know, I work very hard at this, and that I have a very um, that I have a process that makes sense. And so, when we talk about the fifteen hundred pages, that sometimes scares people, but really, it's a three hundred page draft guide where I show another twelve hundred
0: pages of work. And I think I speak for a lot of people where I don't think there are too many other people who do more work than you. It is really comprehensive, and I agree with you. Your process is really translatable, and you can conceptualize it super easily which I think is one of your strengths for sure. You explain things really well, and that's a major, major skill where I know there are certain people who write and they use a lot of, like, overly simplistic language, which just sounds like it's written by a high schooler. No offense to high schoolers out there. And then there are others who write in a very meandering way where it's harder to sort of get to the point. I think you find a really good balance of making things easy to understand, uh, which I know I really appreciate. So moving on to this... So moving on to this draft class as a whole, uh, I know that I think it's gotten a bit of a rep in terms of being a bit of a weaker class. How do you think the quality in terms of skill position players stacks up this year to past years?
1: I would probably be on the on the contrarian, contrarian end of this um, viewpoint because... I think that this is going to be a a point that I'm going to bring up throughout our our conversation tonight, which is I think that a lot of people see this as a weaker class from a skill position standpoint because there aren't as many players who may flash at the combine, who don't have that great size, speed, quickness, all those types of things that you can measure in terms of times. And And a lot of people tend to get a little bit too enamored with those areas of evaluation um, to the point that they're not looking at technique, the ability to use that speed, to use that athletic ability and translate it to the field. And I think that there are a number of players in this draft, especially, you know, I think a quarterback and wide receiver who – there's a good bit of depth to this position. The problem is is that if you look at the quarterback position realistically, most teams no longer give three to four years to really develop a guy and show patience and let him you know ride the bench for a period of time, put him in the lineup for a few weeks. If he makes mistakes, let him sit, but then give him the job back or put him back in the game when things get close and give him confidence. They don't go through that process anymore because today's NFL is a little bit less patient. Even though the salaries for quarterbacks are now low enough that you should it should economically justify. Taking more time to value, to give quarterbacks time to develop. But there's a lot of guys in the middle who could develop into decent starters in this league who probably will never get that shot or will get put in way too early. Wide receiver wise, there's not a ton of guys who are high end athletes on the level that make people drool from a, from a size speed standpoint. But there are a number of players who are good enough to be able to become you know, your secondary wide receiver in a starting lineup, maybe even develop into a primary guy or a productive third receiver who might as well be considered a starter based on the offense, you know, how the offense is um, aligned and the fact that they use three receivers on an often enough basis. So I think there's more depth at both of those positions. I think running back has some particular strengths to it. And tight end even is like seen as a bad class, but i think there's two or three guys in this class who could turn out to be pretty good um, and and develop in the starters tight end is a very difficult position to play and it takes time to develop and when they do they tend you know you're going to tend to see guys like oh i don't know Gary Barnage is a good example of a player that no one ever rated as a starting caliber tight end no one considered him that but look at, you know, Barnage is now, if you're a fantasy football player, he was a low-end tight end one, maybe even a little bit higher than that last year, and people are still looking to him as a as a viable starter. So I think that this tight end class can be better than what people think, too. So to me, it comes down to technique and how people put their athletic um, ability onto the field, and I think there's enough athletic ability in this class as a whole for that to translate onto the field on Sundays.
0: Let's quickly touch on the tight ends, because that is a position that you are saying is underrated, and there are some guys who really jump out at me as not getting a lot of love. And one person I wanted to call out, someone who we both saw at the Senior Bowl, is Jarrell Adams from South Carolina. When I watched him this year, I was actually fairly impressed. I think he's a pretty multidimensional talent, and granted... I don't think I would, say, put any of these tight ends in the Rob Gronkowski group of potentially being really, really elite players, but there definitely is some talent at the position. I know that there are guys like Ben Brownicker from Harvard, Bo Sandler from Montana State, a lot of smaller school guys who've stepped up. David Morgan, who I know PFF really, really likes. Kevon Cartwright is somebody who I've had my eye on for a long time. So this is a class that has some talent. Who are a couple of names at tight end who jump out to you as potentially immediate contributors?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously Austin Hooper heads my list, and he's a guy that I that I think he's the top tight end on this board. I think he is a a, a, a skilled blocker who is going to be able to get onto the field and at least be that second tight end in two tight end sets right away but he will develop into that primary blocker in line but he also has the skill to win the football in tight coverage in bracketed coverage to win it in the air on tough plays this quarterback Kevin Hogan showed a lot of confidence throwing in the ball in difficult situations and letting him go up and get it and while he has a high drop rate compared to maybe what you're looking for in a tight end or you're looking for from a receiver in General, a lot of his what he shows in terms of being able to catch the ball convinces me that the drop rate's not that big of a deal because it's more about for him. It, it you're going to have players who drop the football, but if they make difficult plays, if they show the ability to, to be technically sound with how they catch the ball, I'm not worried about a drop here and there, whether it's a concentration drop or a difficult target. That, that's not a big deal to me. So that's a guy that I really like. I also like David Morgan. He's a player that... Um, I think from a standpoint of physicality, he's a very strong football player. Um, I think that he's a little bit more of an H-back type, though he can excel in line. He's a good blocker. He adjusts to the football extremely well. I don't think he's quite as fluid as you'd like him to be, maybe in terms of how he moves his body to be able to, um, to make the most of his speed and his quickness, but he is very quick. And so... I look at him as someone that could really surprise. Um, Tamar Hemingway of South Carolina State is another player I really like. He's he's 6'5", 244, but he looks more like a wide receiver when you when you look at him. He's kinda of, he looks like he could probably add another fifteen to twenty pounds to his frame and he still has that great speed. He's four seven, one forty, which is a which is a nice um time for a tight end and he has also a very quick three cone time and a and a reasonably good um 20 shuttle and he's someone that runs excellent routes underneath um he's very good at what's known as the whip route which is or also known as the jerk route um to be able to you know work inside out or outside in and it's that's one of those routes where you break you know, one way and get the defender moving with him and then break to the opposite direction across the field. Um, he does that as well as anybody in this in this class. He's also good at catching the ball and tight coverage and winning the ball um, in the air. So this is a player that I can see if someone gives him an opportunity to play as more of a an H-back or a slot player right away, he can do good work for a team. And then if you give him room to develop as a blocker, he has the baseline skills right now as a blocker to get better at it. Um, he reminds me a lot of guys in, in the – mold of jermichael finley and randy mcmichael um i'd love to add shannon sharp to that list but i think that you know let's i don't want to get too ambitious in terms of how good this guy can be i think for right now um you know he certainly has some skills that remind me of that but it's not a not nearly on that level yet but those are those are um three or four guys that that i really like and I feel like that have an option. And I guess the last guy I'd mentioned is Jake McGee out of Florida. Um, He's been injured enough that, you know, he, and he ended up transferring from UVA to Florida, but at 6'6", 249, he blocks reasonably well. He has to get a little bit better in line in terms of his footwork. So he doesn't overextend, but he's a, he's a reasonably rugged player who can make plays in the red zone. Um, I think he catches the ball. Well, he's not a dynamic athlete, but he's more of a Heath Miller type in terms of he's athletic enough to, to win the ball in the air um, and to make some plays underneath and to and to do good work in tight coverage. And at 6'6", he's got a little bit of room to add more muscle to his frame.
0: I really liked the Randy McMichael name drop. That is a name that brings back lots of memories. And I think that's a really good point. When you look at the tight end position, you don't necessarily need a super elite, amazing player. If it's someone who can be a contributor, can make things happen, can block okay, can run a couple of routes, I think that that's totally fine. And this definitely is a position where we've seen even last year, I mean, Will Ty from Stony Brook was somebody who Emery Hunt and I jumped on really early in the year as a potential sleeper and he ended up becoming quite the contributor for the Giants. So definitely a lot of chance to have some impact there from the rookie class. We didn't even talk about Hunter Henry and Nick Vanette, who I think a lot of people have as two of the top three. What do you think of those guys?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think Hunter Henry's in my top three, and he's he's a very solid player. I mean, he makes. He makes the types of catches you're looking for. Um, He's someone who I think that is a much better receiver than he is a blocker right now. I think he overextends way too much as a blocker, and he he has to improve his footwork, improve his attack, so that he can get onto the field. Because most tight ends, unless they have exceptional ability or there's a dearth of talent on the depth chart, Um, aren't going to translate very well early on and get those opportunities to just be a receiver. And right now I think he's more receiver than he is blocker. I think he can become a much better blocker and he probably will fairly soon, but fairly soon to me is in a couple of years. Nick Finette, I'm, I, you know, I, I certainly understand that he's got that height and weight that people like and he comes from a big program and he's got decent athletic ability. Um, I think he can become a competent tight end. I think he'll do damage on play action and he, but I don't think his game's very flashy. I think the, the Goronkowski comparisons are completely, um, invalid. I, I don't think that. You know, I think people are trying to bit that jersey on him, and it's just not who he he is, not what he's shown. Um, And even at the Senior Bowl, one of the things that I mentioned about him is that when he faces tight physical coverage, he tends to lose concentration because he didn't have to deal with that at Ohio State very much. And he was... You know when he had to do that in practice over and over again, he lost concentration to catch the football. Even when he was able to use his hands well enough to get free. So you know, to me, one of the most important aspects of playing receiver or being a receiver and at, at any position is that you have to be able to handle tight physical coverage and not get distracted from the possibility of either getting hit or getting distracted from having to free yourself from contact and he just did not look comfortable with that at all you know when he was playing against air he looked great in practice when he had to deal with someone actually bumping them and shoving them and holding them and, and doing all that didn't catch a single ball that day, didn't catch a single, not that day, that week in practice whenever I saw him faced up in those situations.
0: Yeah, I know he had a lot of hype after those practices, and I thought that Adams impressed me more. I thought that um, Darian Griswold from Arkansas State when he came in was a little bit more impressive, and I agree. I don't see the Gronkowski comparison there at all. But we're going to move from one Ohio State prospect to another one and switch to the running backs. Ezekiel Elliott, in your mind and many people's minds, is a really, really top running back. He does so many things well. It's just very impressive to see him work. I don't think I've seen as complete a running back coming out of college uh, ever since I've started watching the draft, to be honest. In a vacuum, as a GM, if you have a top 10 pick in this class, do you think... That you would take Zeke? Yeah, I would,
1: without a doubt, because I'm not one who follows the rule of you can't take a certain position at a certain point in the draft. I, I just believe that if you if you if the, the the talent is good enough and the and the need is moderate enough, and when I say moderate enough, I mean, look, if you have a guy like Trey Mason. Uh, and you picked him in the second or third or fourth round or whatever the Rams did, but Todd Gurley comes around, you're going to pick Todd Gurley, even if Trey Mason could be a good running back in the league um, because Todd Gurley's that much better, and he could make so much of a difference for your offense. And I think Ezekiel Elliott is – a similar level of talent he's not the same type of talent as Todd Gurley um, but I have him rated equal to Todd Gurley in terms of um, overall depth of talent the difference is that Todd Gurley is more of a physical force of nature even though they both have good times it's just that the way that Gurley expresses his physical abilities is more prominent on the field he, he translates his power and speed better than Ezekiel Elliott does What does Elliott does better than Gurley is probably show better vision and decision making on a variety of run plays. He also is a a slightly better blocker. He's also a you know almost as good. He's, he's an equal receiver to Gurley, I would say. Um, he's more the technician, a more well-rounded technician than maybe Gurley is, And but both are very good. I'm not saying that Gurley's raw in any, stand, um, any way, shape, or form. It's just like comparing um, Marshawn Lynch, who was much more of a technician, compared to Adrian Peterson when they were both in the same class. Um, and so to me... I would absolutely take Elliott because he's someone that can be a game changer for you you don't have to take him off the field you can use him every down he should be able to be productive and wear down a defense for you but he can also break some big runs um, he's going to be an asset in the passing game whether he's a blocker or a receiver and it allows me to to really diversify the offense a little bit more when you can have a player that you can leave on the field like that um, because to me offensive diversity isn't isn't always about having much, a bunch of different role players because that just tips off the defense to what you're going to do more often than not. But if Ezekiel Elliott can do everything, then you have to be on the lookout for everything on every down.
0: I think that over time I originally was in the mindset that you can never take a running back early, and I think that was probably contrarian high school, early college, Ethan, trying to uh, push against the convention and now over time, I've become a little bit more open to the idea. I mean, I was all about taking Todd Gurley early last year, and I think that you have to take Elliott early. He's a top five player in the class for me. He might be number one. I still – I have a lot of guys in the same tier. He's definitely in my top elite tier of players, and I don't think you can pass on him in the top ten. So I'm aligned with you there. Now, to me – and I know that you and your rankings had a pretty good mix of power backs and speed backs traditionally. I am a big fan, especially after you get past that sort of top seven or eight backs. I think that there are some really, really good change of pace backs in this class. Uh, I really like Daniel Lasco at Cal. He reminds me a little bit of Dion Lewis coming out of Pittsburgh. Uh, I really like his ability to accelerate change direction really quickly. I think that he has a lot of versatility. I don't believe you're as big a fan of his, but I like Aaron Green from TCU a fair bit. I think he's pretty shifty in the hole. I know he doesn't break a ton of tackles, but I do think that a team can find a role for him at the next level. And I also really like Tyler Irvin, who was someone we saw at the senior bowl. I think he's versatile. Uh he has some nice skills in the passing game and he's someone who really could open up a defense to me, sort of like how, in soccer, a midfielder with the seeing-eye ability to penetrate defenses down seams can make things happen. I think Irvin has sort of that potential as maybe a Shane Vereen light. Who are some change-of-pace backs that you like in this class?
1: Yeah, and I think all those guys are 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 worthwhile mentioning because even aaron green who i'm not very high on because i don't think he is much of a tackle breaker he does have wonderful skill in the open field and he's he's a quick fast player who can do a lot of damage for you in space so if you use him in the right way he could be very effective for a team as a role player i think daniel lasco is also another player that you know, make sense there. Um, I think I'd like to see him protect the ball a little better. Um, I think that um, his, his change of direction for me needs to get a little bit better. I would say, I think he's a rather the, His agility from changing direction on the field as well as with his three-cone time kind of showed that he needs to – there needs to be – he either is just a little slow on that and that's going to be something hard from the – either that's going to be hard from the fix or it's something that maybe technically he can get a little bit better at dropping his hips and being able to to do some – do some things where he can accelerate in and out of his cuts a little bit better than he does, and I think that there are some techniques to learn there. Guys, who I think that I that I like the most is change of pace backs. Um, I like Dwayne, I like Deon, um, DeAndre Washington out of Texas Tech a lot. Um, I think that. If he could do a better job of breaking tackles, he would be more in my range of players like Maurice Jones, Drew, D'Angelo Williams, and Ray Rice, guys who, who fit that range. Maybe, you know, if he can if he can get even just slightly better at it, then I'd say he'd be in the range of guys like Brian Westbrook and Giovanni Bernard. Um, he's a very good pass catcher. He's got sound vision. Um, he has the burst to be able to get you 10, 20, 30 yards on a regular basis. He led, I believe for a while, he led college football in 30 yard games um, of games of at least 30 yards um, last year. And he's a decent pass protector. He has to get a little bit better at that. um, But with his big playability in hand and enough balance to be able to at least do some nominal work between the tackles, I think that he's a guy that people will like a lot. Um, Another one that I would say fits that bill for me, you know, reasonably well. I would say that you know, Paul Perkins is a guy that people will probably say is an every-down back, and I think he is, but um, but he may start his career as more of a third-down guy. So I'd keep an eye on him. Um, and then I agree with you, Tyler Irvin is a good player. He's he's a player that I would put into that range of You know, someone who is quick, he's fast, he can catch the ball. Um, I'd like to see him be a little more powerful. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. And I'd like to see a little bit more from him in terms of becoming a little bit more of a patient player between the tackles, Um, you know, for him to become a little bit more than just a space player. But I think that he can do a decent job. And then the last player that I'll probably add to this list as a, you know, a third down guy that's interesting to me is D.J. Foster out of Arizona State. Um, he'll likely play receiver in the league, but I think that he's probably I, – I thought he was better as a running back, um, and I'd like to see him, you know, put in that position where he can be more of a space player underneath and, and give him a chance to run the ball. He was a pretty good running back at Arizona State before they moved him.
0: Definitely agree with all the takes there. It's fascinating to me, though, and maybe this is just me thinking a little bit differently and thinking out loud as you're talking about what you're looking for in these running backs. I think that in my mind, I'm a little bit more willing to live with flaws because my team that I root for has so much predicated on scheme. Uh, because I'm thinking of a player like an Aaron Green who really he can't break tackles he's not someone who's going to create a ton after the catch but I'm thinking in New England what they'd probably do with him is that they would just find routes where he could run and get the ball in space where they could throw it short and let him try to create after the catch find seams and make plays in that way rather than focusing on uh, sort of his completeness as a player. So I think it's just fascinating when I talk to other people who like evaluating the draft, how all of our thought processes are different, and I think that there's room for all of them. It's just super fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, and I think that I think frame of reference is a very important thing to be able to highlight when you're talking about how you evaluate. You know, if you're evaluating from a point of view of a team, then that changes a lot of what your rankings are about um, and how you evaluate them. I'm evaluating as a whole about just talent in general, so I have to incorporate a much broader range of of what players have to be able to do. Um, but obviously, you, you hit on a very good point about fit because a lot of these players that were mentioned, guys who could be ranked in the 20th to 30th range of a list at that position could wind up being good role players for a team. who who produce at a high level um, because they have one or two skills that work extremely well. So, you know, even with depth of talent, there has to be some level of breadth of talent with what I evaluate um, when it comes to, when it comes to this, when I don't have a team um, that I'm evaluating for. So it's, you know, those types of differences really do matter. And it's something that sometimes gets glossed over a little bit too much.
0: Totally agree with that. Now, there are some power backs who I know you're a fan of as well, and I definitely like too. and I wanted to touch on a couple and then maybe uh, open up the floor a bit more if there's anyone else you wanted to mention at the position. So, one guy who really jumps out to me, uh, who I know you're also a fan of, is Brandon Wiles from South Carolina, who not a lot of people are talking about, but he's someone who, when I watched Mike Davis, the running back a couple of years ago on the Niners now, uh Brandon Wilds impressed me just as much. He is a huge back. He runs really hard, and he does a lot of little things really well. So I'm just a little fascinating that all of a sudden I realized I wasn't alone in my like for Brandon Wilds. Like he's a top 15 back for me pretty easily. He's actually just outside of my top 10. So I thought that was super fascinating. And another guy who I know that you're a fan of who not a lot of people may be talking about is Peyton Barber from Auburn. Uh, he's someone who, there isn't a ton of tape out on him, but he definitely runs really hard. And I think he's beginning to get a lot of speed as we get close to the draft. There seems to be a little bit more buzz about him. So I'd be interested to hear why you are a fan of his.
1: Yeah, sure. And both those players are in my top 10. And this is something I should note as context. The RSP, the way it's set up, is that I rate based on talent Um, in my pre-draft publication, which is the one we're talking about right now, but I also do a post-draft publication that comes with this, with this, um, whole package. So when you buy the RSP, you get a pre-draft on April 1st. And then the post draft comes out a week after the draft, and that post draft then is something that I use to filter scheme fit, where they went, and I use, and I redo my rankings based on where they are now um, to give you a you know one to two year outlook as to you know where I th- how I think that they will do based on where they went. Whereas the pre draft is more of a longer term outlook without any type of lens of character, um, what anonymous scouts are saying, what media people are hearing from GMs, or anything that has to do with production or anything that doesn't have to do with just being on the field and exhibiting certain behaviors. So from that in mind, Peyton Barber is my fourth-ranked back right now. Brandon Wilds is my eighth-ranked back right now. A couple of years ago, I had Isaiah Crowell as my first-ranked back, even though I'm telling people that I know he's not going to get drafted. He's probably going to be an undrafted free agent, and he may not even make a team. But talent-wise – he's good enough to start for a team. And for two years, he has been at least a a committee back or lead back for the Cleveland Browns. So looking at a player like, let's start with Wilds. I like him a lot, 6'1", 220. Reminds me, if you remember Chris Brown out of Colorado, who played with the Tennessee Titans for a while, his career got derailed by injury because his career kind of went like this. He'd get on the field, he'd get a carry, he'd break it through the line, and run it for about 40, 50 yards, he'd do it again the next quarter, and then he'd get hurt, and you wouldn't see him for the rest of the half, and then maybe another game or two he'd be out. Then he'd come back on and do the exact same thing all over again. He looked very good when he was healthy, but he couldn't stay healthy. He was kind of an upright runner with gliding speed, um, better change of direction than you would expect for a man of his size, um, skill as a receiver, Brandon Wilds very much reminds me of Chris Brown in that respect. Um, He also, like Chris Brown, has had some injury issues, a lot of ankle injury issues um, that plagued him enough that he um, didn't play much of a season. And he split time with other backs, but from what I've heard, the, the the medicals aren't bad on him. He's just had a long list of minor injuries, and they're not anything that's going to inhibit him from having a decent career if he can prove that he can stay healthy. Um, but that fear of injury will probably drop him. The lack of production will probably drop him. Um, enough that he may not even get drafted but the skills are there he's very graceful has better short area agility than you would expect and i think he has strong vision and of course at south carolina you have to be able to catch the football in steve spurrier's old offense um and then barber barber is a guy that trey mason said when he was with the rams that barber was the best Running back on that Auburn roster, on that Robert Auburn team um, after he left, um, and while he I know, I'm sure that Trey Mason is going to say that that Barber was better than him, but he's going to you know he's certainly going to say that he was the best guy on that team. And at that time, Cameron artis Payne was on that roster and starting, but Barber had a bit of a learning disability, um, and some people attribute the learning disability to his slow start. But from what I'm hearing and seeing, it wasn't so much that um, that was not really an issue. What really was the issue is that he was very hard on himself when he made mistakes. Um, so when he made errors, he was he was hard enough on himself that he didn't show the type of confidence you're looking for to, to really be an every-down guy. And then once he got his shot and he was able to – to kind of overcome that and get on the field, he looked excellent to begin the season. And then some people said that he faded, but he didn't fade. What actually happened is that his his playing time faded. His playing time faded because their starting quarterback got injured in week eight, and they went to a more run-based attack with their quarterback. And they decided that because they had a running quarterback, it made more sense to diversify the offense and use a variety of running backs who maybe had a little bit more speed um, than what Barber shows and who could offer a little bit more, um, I guess, for a, a, a defense to fear on the outside um, and not make it as predictable, so they felt like going away from Barber a little bit. but when they used him in those games, he still produced very well he 's a tough inside runner, he is someone that has good vision to set up blocks um, and he is very good at being able to break multiple tackles he 's got good quickness in and out of his cuts, even though he runs a four six four forty. He also had a seven flat, three cone drill, a 4.2120 shuttle, which is good enough for him to be, you know, have that kind of quickness. It's a similar quickness to a player like Kenneth Dixon, who everyone knows is a good make you miss, elusive running back in this in this draft class. Barber's times are as good or better in those two areas. Um, so, to me, he's a player that I think can offer you a lot of what you would get. From players like, you know, Carlos Hyde, um, Marion Barber, his older cousin, you know, uh, um, Spencer Ware, you know, those are the types of backs that I think Barber can be. Um, that kind of guy who closes the game for you, um, but can also be that every down starter if you need him to be. So, um, you know, from a from a standpoint of decision-making, I think he's a very good back who just doesn't have a lot of experience. And because of the lack of experience and the lack of production, he's not going to be at the top of most draft boards. But neither of those things have anything to do
0: with talent. And honestly, as we're talking, this running back class – Is really, really deep. I mean, we have barely even touched on. Kenneth Dixon just mentioned um, Paul Perkins, Procise, Booker, um, your your boy from Georgia, Keith Marshall, Alex Collins, Jonathan Williams from Arkansas. This is a great class, but we are actually going to move to wide receivers. And I want to talk about Laquan Treadwell, who is your top receiver, who seems to be a consensus top receiver. Personally, I have him number two. But he's definitely a really, really talented player, and I know that right now the question about Treadwell is his long speed. So from what you've seen on tape with him, do you think that long speed is an essential part of his game, and how do you think he's able to compensate for maybe not being the fastest guy in the NFL?
1: Yeah, and this this hits on that point that I made earlier and really even talks about some, what I just talked about with some of the backs here is that acceleration, change of direction and technique are far more important than long speed in a, in a football player, and especially the case with wide receivers. I know that you're going to see, a lot of people will see a lot of studies about you know players who ran below this 40 or didn't have this 40 time, only X amount had, were in the NFL or did X, Y, and Z, and that's those are correlation does not equal causation arguments. They're, in other words, they're not good statistical um, correlations that people are making. Um, and when you look at Treadwell, what you really should be looking at is short area speed first ten, first fifteen yards of the line of scrimmage, and what that what that player does with them. Give me a perfect example of a guy, of two guys who had excellent speed and who were big, who were tall who were fast and haven't done really all that much in the NFL. One of them, I think, will. The other looked great as a rookie. Actually, both showed flashes as a rookie, but I'll put it this way. One was Cordero Patterson. Cordero Patterson had, you know, he, he might be the best open field runner I have ever seen who was not a running back. Um, that's, that's And that's what I think of him. But when he was used as a gadget player in Minnesota, it was great. When he was asked to be a real wide receiver, he couldn't do it. The reason he couldn't do it is that he couldn't get off the line of scrimmage against man coverage, and the reason he couldn't do that is he doesn't read, he doesn't read the linebacker, safety, cornerback triangle very well. He doesn't show the footwork and hand ability, the hands to be able to um, work into a, a cornerback, set him up, and then use the techniques to swim, or chop, or hook, or. Do all you know? use those type of variety of moves to get free and get on top of a man early. And the same thing is true of my second player, DeAndre. Um, excuse me, who was the player that no, I'm thinking about? Um, Devontae, Devontae, um Parker of uh, Miami. Devontae Parker looked good last year, but if you noticed, where he looked good was from the slot where he didn't face press coverage. If you watch his tape at, at Louisville, when he faced press coverage, he got eaten up. He couldn't he couldn't win off press coverage because he was you doing something that most big athletic receivers try to do early on when they're not very skilled in this area, which is trying to run away from the man, trying to run outside or inside the man, rather than run towards the man, force the force the defender to have to declare a side or or to force the man into some sort of um, confrontation and then use your feet and your hands to manipulate him and get on top of him. Parker doesn't do that well yet. They, I think he'll learn, but he didn't do it well enough. You watch NC State last year or two years ago, or watch him against Miami two years ago, and there's a lot of plays where you might look at it and go, oh, that was a good play by the defender. But really, what it was is that the defender had great position because Devontae Parker never beat his man in press coverage. Um, Laquan Treadwell does not have that problem. He has a variety of techniques that he can use with his hands. He understands how to use his feet precisely, and he also understands how to work into the defender, not around him early on, so that he can set up those moves with his hands and his feet and get on top of him early. Bill Walsh loved Jerry Rice because Jerry Rice was able to get was the fastest wide receiver he had ever seen in the first 10 to 15 yards of the line of scrimmage. Laquan Treadwell is plenty fast in that range of the field. He's good at winning the ball in tight coverage too. He's very physical after the catch, and he's a great blocker. And when I look at those skills, he may not be your classic deep threat, but he'll get on top of you and control the pace, and he's going to get a lot of catches for 25 to 35 yards, and that's enough to score – you know, I would say half of the touchdowns that he'll probably have in a season on a regular basis. And to me, I think within the next two to three years, he's going to be, you know, a 10 to 12 touchdown player on a, on a regular basis. And I wouldn't be surprised if half of them come from, you know, 30, 35-yard catches where he's on top of the men And it sure looks like that he's getting separation, even though he runs a four six five forty.
0: Yeah, my personal comparison for Treadwell is Chicago Bears receiver Alshon Jeffrey because I think that he was used fairly similarly to him at Ole Miss, but more importantly, I think that they do win similarly and they have some similar aspects to their game. And I think he's a number one at the next level for sure. Uh, I think he's a first-round pick for sure. Personally, I have Corey Coleman a half-step higher than him. I think it's really close, and I know that you're a fan of Coleman's as well. I just see a lot of amazing projection opportunity there. Like, I think Coleman could become an elite root runner, Uh, someone who really just has natural separation skills. I know his hands aren't the best, and, you know, maybe that ends up burning him down the road, but I definitely think that there is some clay to mold there, and he could potentially be the most special receiver that I've seen come out since Antonio Brown. Uh, who is sort of the player who he reminds me of when I watch him. So we'll see, though. those are, It's a pretty good class for receivers. There's a top nine for me that really has separated itself. And one guy who's not in my top ten, but I know that you are a big fan of, who we saw in Mobile is Jordan Payton from UCLA. And I just sort of want to get an idea of what you find so great about Jordan Payton who is someone who I do like, but I don't have quite as high as you.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, Jordan Payton for me is ranked eighth. So for me, that that it's not so much the eighth ranking um, where he is, but it's the score that he has. The score that he has is rated as a secondary starter. I see him as a player who could be your wide receiver too, eventually. So, you know, to me, that's higher than most have him. But I think that... You know, what makes him good is he's a very good route runner. And that's something that, you know, people like to say, oh, well, they're going to learn that when they get into the league. No, they're not. I'm telling you right now, not as many as you think are going to learn those skills. If you don't bring at least the baseline into the league, what you need to do, it doesn't matter how fast or strong you are, because um, you need to be learning these techniques right now because you don't get coached up in them that's the biggest fallacy that's brought up by fans and by some uh, media is the idea that, oh, well, coach is going to bring them in and he's a specialty in this and he's special in that. Let me tell you something. They can teach you technique, but the amount of time that's spent on individual techniques at the position for most teams is minimal. Most players will tell you that they learn, they're learning about X and O's and scheme and strategy and scouting the the opposition when it comes time to actually developing their craft to become excellent technicians of the game that's done on their own that's you know they may do some drills here or there in the senior bowl but do you really you know think about when we go down the senior bowl We went down the senior bowl do you really think someone's going to become a master at releases and get off with the with the you know five minutes on each drill that they do Is that how, you know, if you've ever played a musical instrument, you know that you're not going to become a master at, you know, master your sound or do anything else. If you just put five minutes a day into a specific thing, you need to spend a few hours a day on it. You need to spend, you know, and you need to do it over a long period of time um, and do it consistently. And so I think a lot of people forget that and don't realize that these guys have to go and do a lot of that work on their own and get coaching and help on their own. So to me, Peyton already has those baseline skills. He's faster than people think. I think a lot of people saw him as like – Laquan Treadwell, four six five type of guy, even slower. I think that's what how he was characterized. You're a four four seven forty. This is a guy also who has very good change of direction. He uses his hands well at the line of scrimmage, and he caused a lot of defensive pass interference penalties as a deep ball threat. He was the clutch receiver, the guy that Josh Rosen went to and Brett Hundley went to at UCLA. And I just wouldn't be surprised if he turns into a solid wide receiver two for a team that can give you somewhere between 800 to 1,100 yards um, and and be a consistent option that takes some heat off the primary guy.
0: Yeah, I think that a good comparison for him, in my mind, is someone who was in the Super Bowl this year, and that's Jericho Cotri on the Panthers, who can separate, make some plays happen for you, and – continue to work toward the ball, get open, and be a reliable, nice secondary option for a quarterback. I think that that is Jordan Payton's game. I'm interested to hear, though, you noted that certain traits in your mind are more coachable than others. So what traits in a wide receiver do you see as instantly or almost instantly translatable to the NFL, as opposed to what you think can be worked on?
1: Yeah, well, routes can be worked on. Um, you know, they just, you just have to work on them on your own. You have to, or you have to get some good teaching, but you have to put in the dedicated work every day to learn how to drop your hips, to learn how to use your hands and your feet in conjunction and, and vary the types of moves that you do. And to be able to read the defender, those are coachable things. Hand position in terms of how you catch the football based on when it's arriving, where it's arriving, um, are coachable things. Um, the, the ability to read a defense and understand when you are the hot or when you have to do you know what type of coverage you have to make a change. You, those are things that you can learn over time. Things that are difficult to teach, getting hit and hanging on to the football. that's difficult to teach. That's something that you you either have that ability or you don't um and and i don't think that it's something that can be developed because it's it's really about whether you have that that ability to turn off your fight or flight your flight instinct um as a human being or at least disconnected enough to be able to make the play an aggressive physical mentality to be able to handle that kind of physical tight coverage play also is one that I think that is not easy. You can't, you can't learn that. You either have it or you don't. Um, breaking tackles. You either have it or you don't. Maybe your technique will help a little bit, you know, and that might make you moderately better, but you're not going to go from being, you know, you're not going to learn how to be a tackle breaker like Terrell Owens when you came into the league and you were a tackle breaker on the level of, Oh, I don't know. Um you know, Nate Washington, you know, it's, it, you're not there's not going to you're not going to have that kind of a difference um you know, just by working on technique there. So to me, those are kind of the things that that are that are good separating points between coachable and what you just have to bring to it.
0: Definitely some good points there. I want to move to the quarterback position now. And your top quarterback in this class is Jared Goff. So what in your mind sets him apart from the likes of a Carson Wentz or a Paxson Lynch?
1: Um, he's a much better processor of the game right now. He's much smarter about how he translates um, what he sees on the field to action. Um, both of those players do not read defenses nearly as well. Um, especially pre snap to post snap um, Wentz is very very commonly misses wide open players um, on where they should have been able to see for pre snap that the receiver was going to get have a mismatch and he ends up skipping over it he either stares it down and just goes to the to the first read that was in his planned progression or he just misses it completely and it's usually guys on the same side of the field as his first read so there's really no excuse there other than that he's just reticent to take that chance unless it's just something that he's not coached to do but that's that's hard to believe um so golf is very good at being able to see to read the triangle of you know cornerback linebacker safety to be able to look at things that are happening late in the pre-snap phase and make a quick decision so that he can make the most out of a play and attack a defense He also has a better deep ball than Carson Wentz. He may not throw the ball as hard. He may not be able to throw the ball as far, but he's much more accurate with his deep balls than Carson Wentz is. And he does have a range, you know, throwing from a a plant set structure, he can, he can hit it at 60 yards from his pitch point. He can hit the ball 55 yards opposite hash. He can hit the ball, you know, he can hit a receiver on those types of throws um, without a problem. And so, to me, the arm is almost as good as Lynch and Wentz. The processing is Def, definitively better than those two at this stage and he has better pocket presence than both he's much more skilled at moving away from pressure on you know interior pressure and exterior pressure and either throwing on the run and, and hitting the open man um, or being able to make just one small step avoid a defender who he baits to the last second and then being able to Maintain his throwing position so that, or alter it just enough that he can throw to a receiver on time. And those are important skill in the NFL. And it's that quick mind and and mind timed time, or excuse me that mind tied to what he does with his body that is far more important than how tall you are, how hard you throw, and how pretty the ball looks when it comes out of your hand.
0: I agree with you in one sense and disagree in another, and I'm going to get to the disagreement first. Um, I'm actually a little bit more skeptical of Goff's arm than you seem to be and also some of his processing ability. I've seen a number of occasions where, at least in the games I watched, which, again, I mean, it's crazy how people can see two different things, especially when I'm thinking from a different perspective. Um, I've seen him float a lot of intermediate passes, which – I don't think he can do it the next level. Uh, Some of those passes will get tipped. Some of those passes will get intercepted, and that does scare me a little bit. I'm also a little bit more skeptical about some of the preset movement. I know I was talking to someone at Cal who was explaining their offense to me, and it seemed like uh, he wasn't as responsible for some of the calls at the line of scrimmage as other quarterbacks in this class were which was interesting to me. I've seen a lot of Sam Bradford comparisons. That's sort of the vibe I'm getting as well. But I do think that you're totally right in terms of his intelligence once the ball is snapped. Uh, personally, I have Paxton Lynch a little bit higher than him, but I think either way I could see both of them becoming really good quarterbacks to the next level. But I am with yeah, you and, all the – oh, sorry.
1: Yeah, no, no, no problem. I mean, I, and I think that, you know, certainly when you talk about – responsibility responsibility with pre-snap is one thing but making the most of what you are supposed to be doing and what your responsibilities are is another and you know when you look at a guy like um, Lynch or Wentz their responsibility it's not so much about the breadth of responsibility but the ability to accurately know to use all the tools at your disposal in the right way and for me when you look at golf When you have a situation where you make the right reads of where safety is, you make the right reads of where a linebacker changes his alignment and his steps in a way that tip-off blitz at the last moment, Um, and you're able to know that where your one-on-one is, um, and you attack that even though that wasn't your first progression, That's the type of thing that is finding the easy plays, and he finds easy plays. Tom Brady is great at finding the easy plays. He can't throw a deep ball worth a darn, okay? We all know this. You know, Randy Moss was the ultimate eraser since then. Chad Johnson, Brandon Lloyd... You know, anybody that he's had to go deep with, he's not a, he, he's not a very good deep ball thrower. He's never really has been in, in, on that level. So when I look at something like that, what makes Tom Brady great isn't his deep ball, same with Peyton Manning. It's finding the easy decisions. And that's what makes you a really good NFL player um, when you are a pocket passer. And so to me, you know, I agree. Lynch can be a very good player. I also agree that Wentz can be a very good player over time, but I think that what's important is looking at that. And also, when you look at intermediate throws, I would just point out that timing and anticipation are actually a little more important than power. Um, and when you look at some of the throws that I've seen, I would, re- I mean, I would definitely recommend some games. And if you want to look at that, we can do that. We can talk about some of the games we've seen. But you know, he's it doesn't make him. I would say that the worries I have with golf about interceptions are probably more towards um, him being ultra aggressive with certain throws, trying to fit them into tight spaces that are a little bit more advanced at a certain level than maybe his receivers in this um, in Cal are ready for, and his willingness to take some chances that can tend to bite him.
0: I will say, and I totally understand where you're coming from, uh, in terms of Brady not having a great deep ball, he does have a great intermediate arm. Uh, His intermediate velocity, he can fit some passes in that I'm not sure many quarterbacks in the league can do. Um, But I totally agree with you on Goff. I do want to quickly jump to Wentz, though. Uh, This is a guy who we both have said is not quite as good, maybe, as some of the hype seems to be placing him as, like... He's getting top three overall hype. He's getting top quarterback in the class hype. Uh, why do you think this is happening if you're seeing the same tape I'm seeing and we're just not necessarily seeing that he's the best quarterback in this group?
1: Well, I mean, again, this is, this, this is about – it goes back to the same theme. Um, major media and scouts often like to look at height – weight and arm strength. These are things that they get, they give way too much weight to. Um, and so when you, when you look at guys who are physically impressive, they get excited about that. Uh, you know, I've seen scouting reports from some teams um, from some NFL teams. I um, mean, literally seen the, the forms they fill out, what they look like. and, You know, I saw one for Russell Wilson a few years ago. I was high on Russell Wilson, but I saw one from a scout later because he wanted to share with me what one looked like. And, you know, it basically said everything that was good about Russell Wilson and then said that he'd be a good backup because they were worried about his size. That was it. You know, they they talked about him in glowing terms. They talked about what he could do with the arm. They talked about his processing ability, what he could do in and outside the pocket, all the things that make you a good quarterback. But because he wasn't tall enough, they they instantly marked him down due to size. So when you see guys who are big, strong, and can throw the ball hard – they automatically get that elevation in a way that it's just backwards. And the NFL has not changed that much with its scouting methods. You can hear all you want about analytics. You can listen all you want about the the way that teams are using more um, technology to do things. But again, if you were if you've ever worked in an environment where you know where someone brings in a new customer management system or or some sort of technological advancement, you still have the same people problems. You still have the same issues if people don't want to adhere to that process um, very well. In the NFL right now, there are a lot of old-school people who don't look at analytics very strongly. Um, They don't look upon it favorably. It's threatening to their jobs. Um, and, And then you have people who don't even understand it half the time who are above that who may end up you know, basically undercutting those decisions when it comes to the time to really use that data to make it worthwhile. And a lot of the scouting is rooted in the things that were done 50, 60 years ago and haven't changed all that much. So, you know, again, the, the physical abilities get way too much weight because, again, there's, you only have to throw the ball a certain amount, of, you know, with a certain amount of velocity. You only have to be so tall. You only have to be able to run so fast. But people think that once you get across that baseline number, the more you can do that, the better you are. When really, uh, you know, for the most part, if they don't have at least some of the technical skills to accompany that, there's diminishing returns.
0: This seems like a perfect segue to – move to the society portion of this podcast. Society and stuff will be a little bit shorter this week because uh, we had so much to cover in the RSP and we only covered one one trillionth of what's actually inside it so you should still all buy it. Um, but I wanted to talk about something that you mentioned in 2014 and actually now that I'm thinking about it uh, it really does speak to some of the misconceptions and old school perceptions that a lot of people in the league still seem to have. Uh, I remember in 2014, you on your, I believe it was on the couch. Or on
1: the audible.
0: Yeah. On the audible. Yeah. Not, yeah. So you talked about how Teddy Bridgewater, um, and you called this, by the way, this was before he was going really late in mock drafts. You said he might fall out of the first round uh, because people didn't see him as the CEO of their team because of his, whatever reason, his size, his arm strength, his race as well. Um, And this class does have some interesting quarterbacks, and I've noticed the likes of Trevon Boykin, for example, um, not really mentioned in terms of quarterback ratings. Uh, Cardale Jones, even, someone who won a national championship, and granted he did have a lot of struggles this year, but it seems like he was being discounted for a while as well. I mean, I personally thought that his tape and his skill set was fairly similar to Wentz's, Um, but it seems like they're being talked in a completely different light. So how do you think, first of all, what do you think it would take to change this perception? Because I keep seeing it, and I know that myself and a lot of other people are bothered by it. Like, what What do you think needs to happen for this perception about black quarterbacks
1: to change well i mean one of the things uh, there are going to be a lot of people who may be listening to your show who will say that's not actually true or i disagree that that actually exists and and i can understand why people think that but there is actually even an academic study that recently came out that i have even posted on my blog um that showed that black quarterbacks are um likely to be much more likely to be benched um uh, for poor performance than white quarterbacks and have a less less of the chance of being able to regain a job and this is over you know this is looking at a ton of data over a period of time and it was in a reputable academic journal that this was done. So it was done by a scientific method. Um, and that's an interesting point, you know, to look at from that standpoint. And and what's it gonna take? Well, I mean, this is a societal issue. It's a wider societal problem um, in our country. I mean, there was a study recently, I just, I just listened to on NPR, that was an academic study done. Um, I believe it was at, I wanna say it was at Virginia, I don't remember for sure. But it showed that doctors doctors have fifty percent I believe it's fifty percent of doctors still believe outmoded stereotypes about black people to the point that it affects their medical diagnosis of pain management, that they still believe somehow that black people have thicker skin, so therefore they don't need as much pain medication and that they heal faster. So end up, black people end up getting, diet, get, um, getting prescribed less pain medication than they should be dis- um, prescribed compared to white counterparts. Um, and this is something that's going on in medical schools now. I mean, like, but you see that still perception happening in medical, school, medical schools now. So, when you look at society as a whole, one of the issues that we have is it's not about making it a more colorblind place. It's about being inclusive. It's about having an inclusive, diverse environment um, in our workplaces, in our society, um, where we actually Um, Don't try. It's not about everyone being like everyone else. It's about recognizing differences um, that are true differences so that we can therefore also look at where we are the same. Um, But being able to recognize those differences and honor those differences and appreciate those differences that we all bring to the table um, is what's really the hallmark of the best diversity practices that we see in corporate America. And it's something that, you know, that the NFL is trying to address to a certain level with the Rooney rule um, with coaches, but until the NFL has um, general manager, has more diversity in terms of general managers presidents of player personnel ownership um, you know people who are at the decision making level when it comes to who gets picked, how players get evaluated um, you know what we consider um, you know what we consider a, a good models and bad models or ideal models and not ideal models um, will we're not going to get there until those types of things really happen. Progress is happening, but you're still going to see the issues that we see.
0: Yeah, I have to tell one quick anecdote, um, which actually has some relevance to this time right now. I remember I was interning at a startup. This was about four years ago, and I got into a conversation with this kid who was working there, Um And we were talking about, like, which quarterback we would take. I think it was actually we were talking about Andrew Luck versus RG3. And at the time, I mean, my stance on that debate was always I'm scared about the injuries with RG3 because I'm not sure his playing style is sustainable, but I do think he is a better quarterback. So this was the spring of 2012, and he was like, I wouldn't take him because a black quarterback has never won the Super Bowl, and I'm not sure they can. Uh, which was a bit jarring to me when he said that. I was like, really? But, I mean, Roethlisberger basically, like, played a similar style to um, a mobile quarterback. And you're you're the one who's saying that a mobile quarterback can't win the Super Bowl. So what exactly do you mean by that? He's like, nope. I mean, I was like, Doug Williams won the Super Bowl. He's like, nope. Um, that was a fluke. That's something that isn't going to happen again. Um, I wouldn't take the black quarterback. Uh, funnily enough, now in the past four years, there has been at least one black quarterback in every Super Bowl, and his dad owned the Sixers. So that is yeah. Yeah. that that goes to show you what some karma. Um, that's we, and that's where we are in, in society still, because yeah.
1: again, you know, people like to say, "Well, we have a black president, so therefore everything's okay." When in fact, you know, black females um, actually have probably one of the highest rates of getting MBAs of any racial demographic, but are still paid, even with the same level of experience, same level of job accomplishment and training, still are paid 30% less than their male, white male counterparts. So, um, you know, if you look at, if you look at racism today, it may not be the um, cross burning, um, lynching, back of the bus brutality that we see, that we saw and that was a part of a regular part of America life for 100, 150, 200 years, and even longer than that if you count slavery. Um, but what we have now is more of that next step, which is learning to how for us to recognize each other as different, diverse people with with talents and to be able to get for people to have the same opportunities. It's not about giving people anything. It's about It's not about giving people anything. It's more about opportunities, and oftentimes we focus too much on people who are poor, or we focus too much on the ghetto, and we focus too much on on things where we're looking – where there are a lot of people who are capable of making great decisions – who are capable of leading, who have proven that they're capable of leading, who are not earning those opportunities when they should earn those opportunities to be able to prove themselves, but aren't given that chance.
0: And part of that is because the leadership styles differ. I mean, people lead differently. And I think that in the NFL, there's sort of one perception of how people should lead. There should always be sort of the alpha male, crazy competitive mentality. And we we saw in the senior bowl, Carson Wentz, um, A fun little anecdote. I mean, they were doing jogs around the field, and he sprinted to the front of the pack. He was like, I want to be in front. And that must be something that teams are freaking out about. They must love that. Uh, But then there are quieter leaders or more friendly leaders, like a Cam Newton, like a Marcus Mariota, uh, people who are sort of – they lead by example, a Matt Ryan even. Um, So I definitely think – Joe
1: Montana and Johnny Unitas were not rah-rah leaders. They were not Carson Wentz-like players um, in terms of how they behaved, how they handled themselves. They were actually quite introverted, and if they had to, if they were, um, if they were judged on the same standards as Teddy Bridgewater, um, they also would have dropped, they did drop actually, if yeah. you look at them there. You know, Johnny Unitas was a free agent, was an undrafted player, and, and Joe Montana wasn't a first round talent um, but those are two of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the game and they don't fit that whole archetype of what what um, owners think they should have because again teams like to play amateur psychologist um, and they don't have all that great of a training in those types of things and they perceive things as to what they think good leadership is based on what they do even though they've never seen a football field in their life
0: yeah I definitely concur with all of that we're going to quickly go over to the stuff portion and end on a slightly lighter note uh, so you went to UGA go Dogs. Um, and I asked Sigmund to do the same thing when he was on here. So I have to ask you to tell one great Matt Walden college story.
1: Goodness gracious. Um, you know, before I went to, before, I'll, I'll tell you a great, I'll tell you a great college story. Um, and it has nothing to do with UGA because my first school was University of Miami I was a, I was a hurricane for two and a half years. Oh, that's even I a, better. <laughs> I was an I was a music major, and I used to gig a lot in um, Little Haiti and Little Havana with a band in um, that was mostly from the Dominican Republic, um, in a salsa and merengue band back in the '80s. Uh, um, so I used to do a lot of gigs like that. Um, but I had a roommate who I went to high school with and he and i you know we're pretty good friends and we worked together a little bit i got him his first gig in miami and and you know though and we we you know we were roommates for two and a half years with a couple other guys that are good friends of mine to this day so um but this guy used to always be talking about his band his rock band that he had in atlanta and him and his buddy Ed, and Ed and him were always playing at the South by Southwest every year. They were playing in New York a little bit. They were always on the verge of getting signed. He, Ed, Ed's brother, and a couple other guys, and this band was called, at one time it was called Ed E. It was once called marching Two Step, um, and they come back from South by Southwest and say, you know, we played in this band, the Black Crows got I heard they got signed after that and we heard the show and they were pretty good but you know we felt like we did just as well if not as you know a a better job even though our music is you know fairly different and you know and they they would talk and ed would come down and sleep on my on our couch and they'd record do things like that so anyway after i left and transferred from school last time i saw my my roommate um matt was um was that new year's eve where we drove back from Miami to Atlanta in the span of like, basically we just drove straight and I dropped him off at his house, wished him luck. I was transferring schools, didn't know where I was going to go. I never kept in touch with him all that much. Um, but then a couple of years later, I was reading the Atlanta paper when I happened to be in Atlanta about this rock band led by Matt Serletic, or not led, but produced by Matt Serletic. And um, the lead singer was a guy not by the name of Ed Rowland, who used to sleep on my couch. And that band was Collective Soul. Um, and they were starting to hit the... Uh, they started to, you know, break out and become a big hit, and started to do very well in the music industry. And Matt produced their first album, played keyboards with them, um, and then Matt went on to work with Jermaine Dupri. Um, he wrote um, a bunch of country songs, won an award for writing a song for Willie Nelson. Um, and he became the youngest CEO of Virgin American Records um, in the early 2000s and owns his own production company now and uh, music technology country um, company out uh, in California. And the last time I was, I saw Ed Roland was about a couple years ago. He came to speak at the university at the business school where I've been working for about the past 10 years now. And um, I remember telling somebody who was with the music business program that that guy used to sleep on my couch and ed recognized me from the um while he was up there talking and saw me i was covering the event and he said didn't i used to sleep on your couch and i was like sure did we sat and talked and caught up for a little while so that's my crazy story
0: you never know what people are gonna end up doing that is absolutely incredible that's like really really crazy um (laughs) No, that's, I mean, I was like Collective Soul. I even know what Collective Soul is, because I used to work at an alt-rock station, and we played them a lot, so I did not know that. You (laughs) You know, that's really cool. Um, Ending this on a high note, you know, people really look up to you. Uh, You've been really generous with your advice. Uh, I know a lot of people who are aspiring to write more and do whatever really take you at your word, and they look up to you. Uh, do you maybe want to leave us with one piece of advice one pearl of wisdom uh for those who want to continue to learn more about this and pursue the stream
1: yeah and i i just want to you know obviously i want to thank you for having me on and i want to thank people who are listening to this who have found you know the work that i do worthwhile um it's really strange, I'm just, you know, it's really strange to have that kind of, situ- to be in a situation where that's the case, because you work, you know, especially if you're starting to work hard right now and try and do this, I was there, you know, I'm still there, I still feel like I'm there. Um, so it's, you know, giving this advice, I'm still trying to live this advice. And, and I think the best thing that I can say to you, is to to, especially from a football space standpoint you obviously you want to be able to make enough money to live and that's what you're going to try and do um, if you're going to try and do it for a living but try and make sure that you understand what makes you happy and that you are pursuing things that you can look yourself in the mirror about doing Um, and and be persistent about it. Um, you, you know, you're going to go through times where it feels difficult. It feels like no one follows you or listens or reads what you do. Um, it's going to feel sometimes you're going to feel like that your writing isn't very good. Uh, um, sometimes you're going to feel like you gave your absolute best and no one really cares. You know, you're going to have those moments, but you have to take the long term view, especially with writing. About what you're doing, you know, I get a lot of questions lately about do you think this will make money if I do that? Do you think that'll make money if I do this? And I think the thing that you have to look at is and if you're gonna do some sort of long term project like the RSP is, I looked at the RSP as a five to seven year project, like I need to at least show some promise that this is something that will gain somewhat of a following after five to seven years. And if you've you've gotten the RSP, you know how much work that meant to, to do that. But the first time I you know, the first time I sold the RSP and put the RSP up for sale, you know, I probably could have done done about three or four loads of laundry and gotten a few beers, you know, for what I you know, for what I got from it. You know, and actually probably from the first two to three years that I did it. Um so if you're gonna judge your success or failure on a one-year project or something like that, um, you're not looking at it with the right perspective because you have to build and gain an audience and you have to get better at your craft. And one year of doing it is very rare.
0: I think that's great advice. I mean, I know for me, like I've been pursuing a lot of creative outlets and definitely just like, don't. If, if you're doing it for the money, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're not going to get instantly successful. It takes a lot of time, a lot of soul-searching. I mean, I've been pretty open about this, but like, I wrote a novel um, that I've been trying to figure out how to best position. And I've been trying very to be patient with it because it has taken a lot of time to revise and to put work into it. And, you know... I do that with everything like this podcast. I mean, I'm doing this because I love hearing stories like this and this is what I'm interested in doing. And, you know, I'm just happy for all of you that listen and I'm really, really happy that Matt could join. So Matt, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, why don't you leave with one more plug? Tell the people where they can buy the RSP.
1: Sure. You can just go to Matt, M A T T Waldman, W A L D M A N. Dot com. That's the quickest way to buy the RSP and get the post draft that will come a week after the draft. Or if you want to look around just a little bit and learn, get a video, see what people are saying, learn a little bit more about what I do, you can go to com and see everything in my blog. And there will
0: be links that will take you back to mattwaldman.com to buy the RSP. Definitely. And everyone, if you haven't bought it yet, you need to buy it. It's an amazing resource. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. This is this week's Hammer Time Podcast coming to a close. We'll be back with more great content in the future, more interviews, and a lot of draft stuff as we get closer and closer to April 28th. Uh, Really, really excited about what's going to happen in the future. So thanks for listening and talk to you later.